0: Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Don't forget, our free cheat sheets are available for download at MulcahyLawFirm.com. Beth Mulcahy Esquire is the managing partner and senior attorney for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning and welcome to class number two of our 2022 virtual Condo and HOA Academy. And we're doing this in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. And I'd just like to give a shout out to them because they've been wonderful partners during the entire pandemic, helping us transition to provide great educational content in a virtual format for all of you. So thank you so much to those different cities for partnering with us to provide free education for board members, owners, and managers. Welcome. Hope everybody had a great Valentine's Day. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner and senior attorney of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been representing HOAs and condos for the past 25 years. Can't believe it's been that long. Some days it seemed a lot longer. Our firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. In addition to my practice representing HOAs and condominiums as their lawyer. I also have served on my board of directors on and off for 14 years. And I also have served as a disgruntled owner in my association when I wasn't happy with how things were going when I wasn't serving on my board. So I hope I bring a a unique perspective to you here to these classes today as a lawyer that represents associations, as someone who has served hard time on my board. And then also somebody who, if you're a homeowner, who's maybe not happy with how things are running in your association... I hope that I can provide a good perspective for you from that perspective as well. Okay, let's talk about what's on our agenda today. We are going to give you a 411 on board member roles and responsibilities. So if you're a board member that's listening in here today, this is just a great overview of the responsibilities that you have serving on your HOA or condo board. If you're a manager, maybe you're new to our industry, or maybe you're a seasoned manager. This just is a good little checklist in terms of What are the responsibilities that we need to keep on the radar of board members? And if you're a homeowner who maybe thinks that your board isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing, or maybe you want to learn more about what responsibilities are for board members, this is a great overview of everything that you need to know about serving on a board and running an association. Okay, so our first poll question is, in which city do you reside? And so our poll results are in. We have 2% joining us from Avondale, 5% from Chandler. Zero from Glendale, 7% from Mesa, 7% from Peoria, 13% from Phoenix, 30% from Scottsdale, and 3% from Surprise, and 2% from Tempe. So we have almost every city today represented in our presentation. So that's awesome. Okay, I've got a second question for you. Let us know your current role with your association. And we're going to ask whether you're a board member, a manager, an interested homeowner or other. Okay, 67% of you are board members, 3% are managers, and 26% are interested owners, and 3% are other. So great. Okay, let's dive right into our presentation for today. First things first, let's talk about the legislature. Our Arizona legislature is in session. They've been in session since January 10th. I like to be a little bit of a fortune teller for the future. And so what I can tell you about this session so far, after monitoring legislation for over 25 years, is this is going to be a big legislative session for HOAs. We've seen more bills introduced regarding HOAs and condominiums than any other year in the past five years. Of course, uh, 2020 and 21 were COVID years, so we didn't have a lot of legislation. But this year is going to be a big year. So it's important that we continue to follow it. And I'm going to be talking about the pending bills in the legislature in every class I'm teaching until the legislature closes. And then I I promise you we'll do our update at the end of the legislative session with the bills that pass and um, are signed by the governor and become law. Okay, so what are we seeing so far in the legislature? We're on week five, we're 33 days into the session. We've had about 1600 bills that have been introduced and only one bill has been passed. Last week, we saw a lot of tense committee hearings with both chambers hearing a bunch of controversial bills on elections, education, and healthcare. We haven't really seen a lot of heated debate on HOA and condo bills yet. That usually starts in the next couple of weeks as they move through some of the really hot topic bills in the legislature that we've seen in the past, like education and elections and healthcare. Next week is the last week for bills to be heard in committee in the Chamber of Origin. So, bills that don't make it onto a committee agenda will be dead. And actually, I think that might be by the end of this week. We've seen 17 HOA and condo related bills introduced this session, which is just unbelievable. That's, I think, the most bills I've seen introduced in the entire time I've been practicing law. So without going into all 17 of them, what I did when I was preparing for this seminar today was I divided them up in categories in terms of, there are some pretty clear categories that we're seeing on these bills. So first thing, we're seeing a lot of bills on flags. And of course, Arizona law already has uh, a pretty detailed legislation on what types of flags can be flown and what types of flags associations cannot prohibit their owners and residents from flying. We're seeing an expansion of the flag bills. So we're seeing first responders flags being something that's introduced as something that associations would be required to allow. And we're also seeing some additional Openness on flags for the military and uniform service. So we'll keep an eye on those bills for you, and we'll be sure to update you at the end of the legislature. We're also seeing a bunch of bills, which we're calling green bills. Those bills are typically bills that are environmentally friendly. We've seen an artificial turf bill, which we've seen previously, but this year I think we have a higher probability that it might pass. And basically what that bill says is that associations cannot prohibit an owner who wants to install artificial turf. We always see solar and water bills. And so we will continue to see those this year. We've already seen two that have been introduced. Some other big developments would be lots of bills on short-term rentals, vacation rentals, how to enforce problems with rentals further regulations on short-term rentals. So this is definitely, I think, going to be the year that our legislature is going to try to address some of those problems in our state with short-term rentals. There's an interesting bill on amendments, which would lower the requirement needed to amend your documents. So we're keeping a really close eye on that. There's bills on political signs and the ability to peacefully assemble on political issues, whether they're state, national, local or even your HOA issue in the association. and the association's not able to you know prohibit you from doing that. So that's an interesting bill. We saw a variation of that last year too, and it didn't pass. Some kind of an interesting trend that I just want to talk about briefly is that we're starting to see a trend by our legislature and it's, I mean, I've noticed it before, but we've had a little bit of a break from it for a while. What the legislature is doing is they introduce a bill that has really bad stuff for HOAs in it, and then also really good stuff in the same bill. So I think what they're trying to do is just like X things out. So they appease both sides of the aisle, the, the people that want more regulation of associations and then the people that don't want more regulation. So some things that we've seen in one bill that was like that dual purpose bill that has bad stuff and good stuff is a revamp of all the lien sections for associations' ability to record liens on an owner's property. There are some good parts. They they added a a section that says that we can charge interest if your documents allow for it and um, have that interest be included in the lien that we might be able to foreclose in the future. But there are also some bad parts. Like they made the HOA lien subject to the homestead exemption, which would, you know, basically... It's right now we're exempt from the homestead exemption, our lien. And if that changed, it would really be a game changer. It would be less likely for associations to foreclose because it just wouldn't make business sense. Uh, but in the same bill, they also had some other good things, which would be the number of those statement of accounts that associations and management companies are having to send out if you have 50 or more owners in your association. And if you have a management company, basically, they want to eliminate that. and. So sending the statement of account to all members would be eliminated, which is a good thing. And then also they took out a provision that you have to wait 30 days prior to sending a delinquent owner to the association's attorney. The trend this year is we're seeing some bills that have lots of good stuff in it and then also lots of bad stuff in it. Just so you know, during the time that the legislature is in session, they started, as I said, January 10th, they're going to be going likely until June if I... Seeing the number of bills that have been introduced, I think it likely will go into June this year. We are, our firm, as always, has a, a summary that we do every week that the legislature is in session. Our firm posts an updated summary of the pending HOA and condo bills in the legislature. You can find this weekly updated summary on the homepage of our firm's webpage at MulcahyLawfirm.com. Make sure you're checking that out, especially as the legislature starts winding down. um, And we'll be talking about it for those of you who are joining us on our classes uh, from now until June. Okay, our big topic today is duties and responsibilities of board members. For those of you who are familiar with our law firm, we have a great cheat sheet um, that we have put out called Board Member Roles and Responsibilities. And this is a deep dive for those of you who maybe get off this presentation today and want some additional information. And you can also always find all of our cheat sheets, and we have over 60 of them now, on our website at MulcahyLawfirm.com. Okay, before we get started, I want to get a little poll going. Do you fully understand and have a high comfort level with all of the duties and responsibilities of serving as a board member? So I think this is a really good question to ask in a, the format of this class because a very common thing that I hear from board members is once they're elected, they're concerned because they don't really know what all the laws are and there's sometimes not a very high comfort level. So we have 67% of you here today that are joining us that are board members. And so I'd like to just hear what, what is your comfort level here today? A high comfort level by 42% of you. And not a high comfort level by 42% of you. That never happens for we have the exact same number. So that's interesting. And then 16% of you aren't sure. That's good. Half Over half of you here today um, want more information and want to feel more comfortable with what you're doing. Um, now, for those of you who may already have a high comfort level, this is just a great overview and a reminder of some of the things that you need to focus on as you're serving on your board. Okay, let's start out and talking about the board. When you serve on your board, even though you're a volunteer, you are expected to comply with Arizona and federal laws. You are expected to know Arizona and federal laws. And we're going to be doing a really good overview for you today. So you'll have a good comfort level as we progress through our class today. Another important thing that you need to do is be professional and act in a business-like manner when you're serving on the board. And trust me, I get it. I serve on my board. I serve on two boards right now. I'm a master board and a sub-association board. And I can tell you that sometimes people come to the meetings and they just don't get it. They don't understand what a difficult job it is to serve on a board. You just have to understand that even if people come and maybe they don't fully understand the role of what you're doing on your board, that maybe you still have to be nice and caring and listen and try to educate them in a professional manner as to what the board's trying to do and why we're making the decisions that we make. Okay, we're going to move on to general responsibilities. And we're going to start out with board members and directors, what they're responsible for. So first thing first, you have to participate. If you are serving on your board, you have to show up to board meetings. It's significantly easier now that the meetings are being um, conducted virtually. Most of our associations are still doing virtual um, board meetings. Very few are meeting in person, and most really like it because they it's you know easier. There's less conflict. People can participate from home or from another state if they want to. If they're out of state owners or maybe board members traveling. But when you serve on your board, you have to show up, you have to participate, you have to you know, come ready to the meetings to make decisions, read that board packet before you come to the board meeting so that you're not just walking blindly into the meeting and not knowing what the board's going to be discussing. And this isn't really that big of a time commitment. And so, for example, I get our board packet. I have... We have a board meeting this week for my association on Thursday... And we actually received it on Friday, which was awesome, Friday of last week. And maybe Wednesday night, what I will do is I'll take a quick spin through it. Spend 15 minutes, that's it, just to familiarize myself with the issues that we're going to be discussing at the board meeting, taking a, a close look at the financials, even though I am not the treasurer for the association, but I do carefully look at, at the financials, the year to date budget and any things that I'm gonna be asked to vote on at the meeting so that I'm prepared. 15 minutes, that's all it takes. Also another role or responsibility that you have as a board member is reading, understanding, and being in compliance with your governing documents. So one time a year, spend fifteen minutes going through your association's documents. And the association's documents that I'm referring to would be the CCNRs or the Declaration of Covenants, Conditions, and Restrictions for your association, your bylaws, your articles, your rules, your article or your uh, architectural guidelines, if you have any. And basically. Just open them up and get the lay of the land and then bring them to your board meetings. Or if you're doing the meetings virtually, have them available to you on your computer while you're navigating through the virtual board meetings. The reason why I ask you to do this is it's important just to have a general understanding of what the documents say and where you need to look if a question comes up. Like For example, the CCNRs typically have provisions in there regarding use restrictions regarding insurance requirements, who maintains what, whether the association maintains it or the owner maintains it, assessment collection, how to handle delinquent owners, how to handle architectural review. And you just want to make sure that you understand, okay, if there's a question on can someone have a shed or not, it's likely going to be in the CC&Rs. The bylaws are the how to run the association, the board, when to have the annual meeting, how many board members there should be. It's just like the how to run the association. The rules typically are just governing behavior on common areas. The architectural guidelines are going to be what you can and can't do on your properties. If you have those, some associations don't even have architectural guidelines. And your articles really don't have a lot of pertinent information in there other than it's setting you up as a nonprofit corporation. And occasionally when there's a conflict between documents, like sometimes the articles will say one thing, like there should be three board members and the bylaws will say something else there should be five board members the hierarchy of documents would be that the articles trump the bylaws so you'd go by what the bylaws say what does it mean to have a fiduciary duty to the association so any board member that's serving whether you're an officer or a director in your association you have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the association what does that mean this is probably the most important thing that i'm going to say today so make sure that this is something that we we talk about, we understand. If you have questions, make sure you ask questions as we progress through this seminar. Okay. So having a fiduciary duty means that you place the interests of the association above your interests. You also are overseeing and treating the association's services and facilities as a business. You're hiring licensed and bonded contractors, closely overseeing the management company if you have one in place, Um, making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, paying bills on time, responding to owners, making sure that the common areas are being maintained. And if you're overseeing the management company, if you have one, then the management company is in fact overseeing other aspects of your association like banking, budgets, insurance, utilities, landscaping, taxes. So the board needs to keep an eye on your management company if you have one. If you're a self-managed board, it's even more important uh, that you're Attending seminars like this and reaching out to trusted advisors to help you navigate your time on the board because you don't have the management company who's guiding you and helping you with a lot of these things. Some other things that I would say that is important fiduciary duties, there's really three key things. Under Arizona law, the fiduciary duty is defined as a duty of care. So when you're making decisions pertaining to your association that you're taking your time, you're researching things, you're getting adequate number of bids, some things it's been difficult getting bids in the pandemic because there's a shortage of contractors able to help associations, but at least try to get two bids, preferably three on any larger projects for your association. So that duty of care is important. Showing up to your meeting, being ready to participate, understanding the issues facing your association, caring about how things look. The duty of care is, is one major element. Another major element is the duty of to keep things confidential. So duty of confidentiality, which means that when you're serving on your board, you're going to hear the juicy scoop on a lot of different things. And you don't even realize that when you become a board member. But as you, you know, go through your term, you're going to be hearing things about domestic disputes, owners that don't pay their assessments, owners that are unhappy about issues, owners that blow off the restrictions in your community and refuse to comply. And these typically are going to be discussed in the executive session. And so anything that you hear as a board member in your executive sessions needs to be confidential. And so you can't talk about it with your spouse, with your family, with your friends. You can't talk about it with your walking group at the association. So anything you hear in executive session needs to be kept confidential. So that's the second element. The third element is going to be the duty to avoid conflicts of interest. So as you're serving on your board, you should not be personally profiting from um, your time serving on the board. You shouldn't be... Any of your family members shouldn't be making a profit because you're floating contracts to them, work for the association. You need to really stay away from that. So the third prong is the duty to avoid conflicts of interest. So just a quick summary, really important concept for board members. You have a fiduciary duty to your association when you're serving on your board. And that involves the duty of care, the duty of confidentiality, and lastly, the duty to avoid conflicts of interest. Okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about board meetings and what are the laws on board meetings. So every month, typically, or every quarter, some associations meet less frequently. Your association has a board meeting. This is just a regular open board meeting. And remember that there is a special law in Arizona that talks about how open board meetings for HOAs and condos must be run. So I'm just going to give you the most important things to remember about those meetings. First of all, like I said previously, most of these meetings are being conducted virtually now. And some are meeting in person, but most are still meeting virtually. And I think this kind of might be a thing for the future, that this might be something that is a result of the pandemic we likely meet virtually now more than we do in person. So under Arizona law, any time a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, it must be an open board meeting. What does that mean? It means that we have to give 48 hours notice to the membership of the meeting. And that can be done under the law by conspicuous posting on the properties. You can put it on bulletin boards or sandwich boards at the entrances of your community or any other reasonable means. And most of our clients now are publicizing board meetings, open board meetings, and executive session meetings, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You're required to notice both of them by putting it on their website or sending out an email or maybe having a notation on it in your association's newsletter if you have one. So these are the common ways to get that 48 hours notice out to your members. Another important aspect of the open meeting law is don't forget that owners are allowed to attend, listen, and participate at appropriate times during these open board meetings. And so typically what happens is the board will have a homeowner forum at the beginning of your open board meeting. And each owner will be given a minute or two minutes to um, talk about any issues that may be pressing to them or they want to make the board aware of. And then the board goes into the open meeting and the homeowners aren't allowed to contribute again until the board takes formal action on something. So anytime there's a motion and a second and the board's about ready to take a vote, there's a discussion period where the board you know, can discuss the, the motion that's on the floor. If any owner reaches out to the board during that time and asks to make a statement or a comment, the board can put a time limit on how long they are contributing but they have to allow an owner to contribute. One thing that kind of came up last week that I think is important for me to talk about is if an owner doesn't want to to attend a meeting, but they want to designate a third party to come to the board meeting, they have the right to do that. They just have to put it in writing and call that person their designated agent. And that person can be a non-owner, it could be a renter, it could be a family member, it could be their attorney. And basically, they just put it in writing and say... Johnny Appleseed is my designated agent. And that designated agent can come to the board meetings and participate at appropriate times, but they can't vote at an annual meeting or anything like that. That's just an important part of the open meeting law that I wanted to mention. Don't forget that you have to have an agenda at every open board meeting. So a good thing to do, What we're finding is many associations when they put out their notice, the agenda is actually the notice of the meeting and they indicate the meeting's going to be held on X date, time, place. Here's the Zoom link if we're doing it by Zoom. And here's the agenda of the topics we're going to be discussing at this meeting. Okay, let's talk about executive sessions. This I've actually seen a really big improvement on this over the past... A few years. So the board can go into what we call executive session, which is just the board and maybe a special guest if the board wants to have a manager, attorney, or maybe even a homeowner if there's a violation present. An executive session is a time that's separate from the open board meeting. And before you go into executive session under Arizona law, you have to notify the owners of what sections you're going to be Discussing. Discussing under the law that fall under the executive session categories. For example, most associations will have a regular board meeting that's open, and then the executive session will follow the open board meeting. So on that agenda that you're sending out to your owners for the open board meeting... You should also indicate that the executive session will immediately follow the open meeting and then indicate what topics you're going to be discussing during the executive session that's required under the law for you to do that. One other just pointer, if you're having an executive session without an open session before it, you still have to provide notice to the members even though they're not allowed to attend. So that notice, if you're just having an executive session, would have to be posted 48 hours in advance of the meeting. And you would you know, be required to state what portion of the law you're going into executive session to discuss. So very quickly, what are the most common topics that you discuss in executive session? Advice from your attorney, any delinquent assessments, collection, delinquent fines, any violations by owners sometimes we'll have personal information about an owner that we're discussing that it wouldn't be appropriate to be discussing in the open session. The law allows for that. Any problems or issues with contractors, any discussions regarding how much we're paying contractors, those are the most common topics that we discuss during executive session. If you want the deep dive on that, you can go again back to our cheat sheet that we have on board member roles and responsibilities. Or we also have another really good cheat sheet on open meetings that would be helpful. Okay. So bottom line, when you're serving on your board, you must comply with the Arizona open meeting law. Very briefly, I want to mention use of email. Be really careful when you're using email for your association business. It, you can use email as a board to share information. For example, can everybody meet with the contractor at you know, 9 o'clock in, in the morning on Friday? But making a motion like, let's fire the management company, or let's hire a tree trimmer to trim the trees, and then everybody's discussing it and voting on it, that is a violation of the open meeting law. So be very careful on that. There are some exceptions. If there's a true emergency and you can't wait 48 hours to make a decision, you can make a decision if it's a true emergency, by either having an emergency board meeting... And Or by making a decision by email, just make sure that you keep the paper trail on that. If you have an in-person meeting, you'd have to take minutes and read those minutes into the record at the next regular board meeting after the emergency meeting. Or if it's on email, you'll want to print out those emails and attach them to discuss and attach them to the next regular board meeting. Okay, so really important concept following the Arizona Open Meeting Law. What are some other things that you need to be aware of as you're serving on your board? making sure that you're following and enforcing the governing documents. So we talked about being aware of what they say. You also are required to enforce them. And that could be the CCNRs, the rules, architectural guidelines. An example of this would be collecting delinquent assessments from owners. Fortunately, the economy has stayed pretty steady in terms of owners paying assessments throughout the pandemic. Now, with the inflation numbers going up, this definitely may change in the future. So making sure that as a board, you're looking at that delinquent list, the delinquency list every month when you're meeting and making sure that you're pursuing the owners that aren't paying their assessments. That's an obligation that you have to comply with your documents. And another example would be, let's say your documents don't allow sheds or they don't allow gazebos. You, your responsibility is to enforce those documents and to not allow those. Now, if you don't want those sections in there anymore because you want sheds and you want gazebos, the remedy is that you amend your documents to allow for those. Following your governing documents, another really important responsibility of serving on your board. Okay, let's talk about what do you do when you have an owner that isn't complying with your cc That seems to be one of the biggest questions we get from board members whether it's an owner not paying assessments, or maybe they've made an architectural change to their property without seeking permission, or maybe they it's a rental property and they're having wild parties and it's driving the neighbors nuts. So when you have CCNR violations, you have a number of different remedies. Typically, they're laid out under Arizona law or in your documents. So probably the easiest remedy that you have is contacting the owner, or sending a, a violation letter escalating it by fining the owner. You can fine the owner under Arizona law. You don't have to have a fine policy under Arizona law in writing because Arizona Condominium Act and the the Planned Communities Act both allow associations to levy reasonable fines after notice and an opportunity to be heard. But some associations like having a, a written fine policy and that's okay. Many associations do that and they follow those carefully when there are violations. So Remember, just to close the loop on this, when you have an owner who is not complying with your documents, there are remedies. You can send violation letters, you can fine the owner, you can escalate it to your attorney to send a violation letter, and you also have the ability to file a lawsuit in Superior Court, or you also have the ability to go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate and file a petition asking the administrative law judge to rule that the owner is in violation. And... There's a number of different remedies. Once you get to the point where you've sent them letters and you find the owner and they're still not complying, then you really need to escalate it to um, the association's attorney to um, go the legal route and take the next legal steps. Okay, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what we do when an owner asks to see the books and records of the association. So an important part of the laws that pertain to associations is the requirement that when an owner asks for information, written documents that belong to the association, that the association is required to allow the owner to inspect the documents or make copies of them. And it's this is applies to both condominiums and planned communities. And so how this typically goes down is you have an owner that's upset about something and they contact the association and they want volumes of records. And it's important for you to know when you're serving on your board or responsibility of the board is that you are required when an owner asks to see the books and records of the association, we are required to allow them to inspect the records if they want to come in and inspect them. Or if they want copies, we can provide them with copies. We can charge 15 cents per page for the copies. We cannot charge them for the time it takes us to put them together, unfortunately. And so the association can't charge the owner for the time putting it together, but we can charge, like I said, for the $0.15 cents per page copies. There are some things that the owners aren't allowed to see, few and far between what they can't see. So advice from the attorney, anything that's pertaining to actual litigation pertaining to the association and an owner or the association is involved in any litigation, they can't see that. Um, they can't see how much we're paying vendors However, there's so many other places that they can find that by looking at the budget um, or the check register, which they are allowed to see the checkbook and bank statements that we typically tell clients not to withhold that. So just know as when you're serving on your board, if an owner makes a request to see the books and records of your association, you are required to either let them inspect them or provide copies to them. If you have just a way over the top request to see records, like 20 years of records, Sometimes it's difficult to meet the deadline that you're required to respond. It's 10 business days under the statute. So what we do when we receive a request like that is we immediately reach out to the owner, let them know that it's going to take us more than the the statutory time period to respond. We put that in writing and we let them know it's going to take us 2 weeks or 30 days. And at that time, I also... You may want to turn that request over to your attorney because obviously this person is really disgruntled if they're asking for that many records. And what I typically do if I'm contacting an owner regarding a really large records request is I'll say to the owner, I'll call them and I'll say, let's talk for a minute. What exactly is going on? What are you upset about? Why do you want to see these documents? And we try to um, whittle down what they're requesting. And I may have to explain to them that, hey, if the records don't exist, I can't give them to you because we don't even have those records anymore. Maybe they're really old or they were destroyed in water damage or management company, prior management company lost them. So having your association's attorney run interference on that is a really good idea when you have difficult owners who are making large records requests. It also is an opportunity to reach out to the owner and to talk through whatever they're upset about. And sometimes, I've had records requests where people, thousands of documents. And after we talk a little bit, we can narrow it down to 5 or 10 sheets, which ultimately is going to end up saving your association time and money. And also it's an opportunity to open the communication lines with that owner to see what's going on and see if we can try to find a win-win on. Okay. Another important facet of serving on your board is having good communication with your owners. So having a newsletter... Having a bulletin board with information, a website where owners can go online and and find out information about your association, posting your minutes of the open board meetings so that if owners can't attend, they can go back and read the minutes or maybe even videos. If you're uh, recording your meetings, having a place where owners can go to find out more information on your association. What I can tell you based upon my experience is the associations that communicate the best have the fewest problems. So having that communications element to your owners, letting them know what you're working on, letting them know about big capital projects that may inconvenience them, telling them about the successes that are happening in your association are really important so that people don't feel that they're not in the loop or that the association's hiding things. And you're always going to have disgruntled owners. Just that is just a fact of serving on your board. But When the association is communicating really well to the entire membership, when the disgruntled owner tries to go around the neighborhood, creating drama and trouble, if you've already communicated and you're keeping your word and you're getting things done as a community, that disgruntled owner is what they're saying is going to fall on deaf ears. So keep that in mind. The associations that communicate the best have the fewest problems. Okay. Another responsibility as you're serving on your board is creating a budget. Typically, the budget for your association is created... Let's say, for example, we're going to be doing a 2023 budget for an association, for your association. You'll typically start working on that in August, September, October. If you have a management company, they typically will help you with the first draft. We have a great cheat sheet on this on... Creating an association budget. I encourage you to look at that. It's on our webpage if you're interested in that. And now we're in the time of the year where, okay, we've already created our budget for 2022. And now we're looking at the budget every month when we're meeting as a board to see are we over budget? Are we under budget? One thing that our association does where I'm on the board is we call out any particular line items that we're over budget by and we ask for an explanation if we're. 80% over budget on something, we'll want to talk about it. Why did that happen and how are we going to make up that deficit elsewhere? So as a board, you have an obligation to create your budget every year. And you typically do that in the fourth quarter, third, late third quarter, early fourth quarter. Then you approve it typically at your November or December board meeting. And then you move on to the next year and you just continue to look at the year-to-date budget every month as you're having your meetings to make sure you have enough money at the end of the year to meet all of your obligations. And also to make sure that the owners are paying because the income that comes in is how we pay for everything. Okay. Another thing that's important for you to know, another important responsibility is having an annual audit review or compilation done for your board every year. So under the Arizona Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act, All associations are required to have an audit, review, or compilation. This is laid out in the Arizona Revised Statutes. If your bylaws require the audit to be done by a CPA, it must be done by a CPA. If your bylaws don't call out that you have to have an audit, review, or compilation done by a CPA or professional bookkeeper, you don't have to do it that way. Now, we recommend, of course, as legal counsel for associations... That all associations, if you have the financial resources to do it, try to have an audit done every year or every other year. If you don't have the financial resources to do that, plan for it in your budget. So you can maybe do it once every five years. Take five years of records to the CPA and and have the CPA randomly select a year. That's another way to do it. If your association doesn't have that requirement in your bylaws to have a CPA do the audit review or compilation, you can have a committee you can have somebody with financial expertise in your association review everything the treasurer for the association the way that the law is written it really doesn't have a lot of teeth i think the intent was to make sure that boards were being you know financially accountable and that we were having a third party checking to make sure that but the way the statute was written it doesn't require it to have a cpa do it unless your bylaws require it so my best advice to you if you're an association that doesn't have that requirement to have a CPA do it, have an independent third party checking it to make sure that there are checks and balances in place for your association. Okay, another important requirement for serving on your board is making sure that you have adequate insurance for your community. And this is typically all laid out in your association's CCNRs. We have a great cheat sheet on this topic if you have further questions on this. A couple points on insurance. The most important insurance that your association should have with the general liability policy. So, if anybody trips and falls, or there's an accident at your pool, or there's some other incident that happens in your association, having that comprehensive general liability insurance is very important. If you're a condominium, you're going to have additional insurance, typically for the buildings and any common elements that are structural common elements. Your For both planned communities and condominiums, it's important to have directors and officers insurance that protects the directors and officers for the decisions that they're making pertaining to the association. Nobody should be serving on a board for an HOA or condominium if you don't have DNO or directors and officers insurance in place. And that just protects you so that in the event that you are sued as a director in the association or the association is sued for a decision that the directors made, that there's insurance coverage to protect you and your personal assets. So very important to have that insurance. Another important thing to have is a fidelity bond. And that protects the association in the event that somebody steals money from your association, whether it's an employee, a director. And so you want to look very carefully at the amount of the fidelity bond. Typically, you want to have enough money in your fidelity bond to cover what you keep in your general checking account at all times. And you also want to be really careful if you have a reserve fund for your association and you a special reserve account, that it's not something that that money can be transferred easily, meaning that you'd have to have a board resolution where a majority of the board would vote to move money from the reserve account. And it wouldn't be something that just one board member could electronically transfer money in and out of the manager, could electronically transfer money in and out of your reserve account. That's really important kind of a check and balance to have in place. So to close the loop on insurance, you are required to carry insurance as an association. You should have a trusted insurance agent that you reach out to. Typically you get a notice of renewal or non-renewal 60 days before your policy is up for renewal. You want to make sure that's on your calendar. That's an important date that you, so that you're doing your due diligence. maybe you're getting another bid to make sure that you're paying the market rate for your insurance and carrying the adequate insurance as is outlined in your association's documents. Okay. Next thing that's really important is having a dream team supporting your association. So what is a dream team? A dream team is a team of experts who are there to give good advice to your association. Your dream team should consist of your management company if you have one. An attorney that is has experience and that represents... Their entire practice area is representing HOAs and condominiums. You'll want to have an insurance agent like we just talked about that you have a relationship with. So when you have a big fire or a flood in your community and you pick up the phone and you call the agent, they respond to you and they help you manage and process that claim. They don't want 800 number you to some corporate office. You want to have a relationship with that insurance agent. So when problems happen, they are there to help you through them. A reserve specialist to help your association plan um, for the long term capital improvements in your association. And that includes having a reserve study done by using that reserve specialist. So, surrounding yourself with a dream team so that your board can make good decisions, because ultimately, you haven't spent your entire life getting prepared to serve on your board. You've had other careers, other experiences. You're just volunteering now because you want to make your community a better place. And so you don't have expertise on the intricacies of the law. And so you need to have an attorney that you trust that's going to give your association good advice and keep you out of trouble. And you're going to want to have that insurance agent that you can pick up the phone and call when there's a problem and help you through that problem. And so having that dream team in place is important so that you can have a stress-free time serving on your board going to be stressful as it is serving on your board because there's just problems that come up. That's just the way associations work. There's typically, there's lots of wins in terms of you're accomplishing many things, improving things, maintaining things. But then there's also problems where you have people that are upset or whatever. And so when you have problems, being able to rely and count on your dream team to give you good advice so that the problems don't escalate and become gigantic is really smart. So that's something that we we suggest. Another really important thing to remember when you're serving on your board is remembering that the annual meeting is your time to shine. So the annual meeting is your meeting of the membership that happens every year. You are required to have an annual meeting each year. Typically, the date of your annual meeting is listed in your association's bylaws. You really have to prepare for this annual meeting. It's you need to start thinking about it at least three months in advance, maybe more. And you need to plan it out. Like we want to pick the date. We want to get the venue. And a lot of associations are doing annual meetings virtually with Zoom. And that's great. There's no problem with that. There's a little more preparation that you're going to have to do if you are having it virtually in that the notice is going to have the login information for the virtual meeting. You're going to have to really think through how you're going to accept ballots When the cutoff date for the ballots are going to be, how we're going to handle any ballots that want to be turned in virtually the night of the meeting if they haven't already voted. And your attorney can help you with setting up all of this. But the bottom line is, we have a cheat sheet on annual meetings, which is awesome. We just shared it with you. That's a good resource for you. You should plan it out, block out when we're going to ask for candidates who want to run. You're going to want to get the notice out well in advance, make sure if it's virtual, you have all the information on how they can connect virtually. The ballot, you're going to have an absentee ballot because owners are required under the law to be able to vote by absentee ballot or in person. So you're going to want to figure out the logistics on when the ballots are going to be returned and anybody who appears virtually, how we're going to get the ballots counted. Typically, we just have the person take a photo of the ballot if they appear virtually and text it or email it to uh, the manager or the association's attorney. So there are a lot of different little logistics that you have to have in place for the annual meeting. Remember, at the annual meeting, it's your time to tell the community about your accomplishments, your challenges. It's the general overview of what's going on in your association. It may be the only meeting each year that your owners actually attend. And so you want to give them a 360 view of the finances, capital improvement projects. The board president typically gives a a speech about what's happened in your association within that year. The treasurer gives a speech. The management company typically gives a presentation. And then there's a time for owners to ask questions. So you want to have this be a very professional meeting where there's value given to the owners that that attend. Okay, we have a couple more subjects that we're going to talk about for responsibilities of board members. So another important thing that associations need to know is that you have two like box checkers that you need to do for year association every year. So number one, you have to file taxes. You have to file state and federal taxes as an association, um, whether you're an HOA or a condominium. And so you should have your CPA help you with that. Some management companies help you with that. But every year, you do have to file state and federal taxes. If you're an association that's sitting here listening and you haven't done that ever, reach out to a CPA, talk about how you want to handle that going forward. Most CPAs recommend that you just start filing taxes going forward and that you don't go backwards. Typically, the IRS, in my experience, I've seen that associations are in the situation. They don't make them go back. They don't even notice that there's been a situation in the past. It's a very small tax and it's not something the IRS is going to make you go back 10 years on. But then going forward, you're going to have to file it every year. Another box checker is Almost all associations, I would say 99% of you are set up as nonprofit corporations. And you have to file an annual report every year with the Arizona Corporation Commission. Now, the Corporation Commission doesn't give you any sort of reminder. So we're sharing with you here the link to the Corporation Commission's website. You can also Google it. You look up your association's name, and then you determine whether or not you're in good standing. If you don't file your annual report, you go into bad standing with the Corporation Commission. And then after several years, you lose your nonprofit status if you don't file this annual report. So it's really important for associations to make sure that you're filing your annual report every year. It's a very small charge to do it, but it's a must-do box checker. If you're an association that has a problem with the Corporation Commission and you need to get back into good standing, make sure that you're reaching out to our firm. We can show you how to do that because it's really important that your association has that nonprofit corporation status. If you don't have it, each owner in the association is individually liable for the debts of the corporation. And that is very serious. So got to make sure you're maintaining that corporate status every year by filing your annual report. Okay. We have some additional information on our cheat sheets that I'm not going to talk about, but if you're interested in doing more research about what are my specific responsibilities serving on the board, like if I'm the president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, the cheat sheet that we shared with you on board member roles and responsibilities has a really good detailed outline of that. If you're new to the board, some quick tips. Number one, try to find a mentor on the board who can help you navigate any issues that may be long-term issues. If your association has been involved in litigation on a matter for many years, you might want to have a board member or the association's attorney just do a quick 411 on what the lawsuit's about, what the end game is on it, how we're progressing in it, etc. Don't forget to read the association documents each year. Remember, we talked about that Earlier in the presentation, just spend 15 minutes, do a quick run-through of the documents so you understand what each document does and where you can find things. Know where you can find Arizona laws. The Arizona legislature webpage has some great information on it. Our cheat sheets truly are the best resource for you. If you go to our webpage at mokahielawfirm.com, we have cheat sheets on basically every law that pertains to associations in Arizona. And you can find those all on our Cheat Sheets tab. Again, at MulcahyLawFirm.com. We also have a great Federal Laws Cheat Sheet that talks about the federal laws you need to be aware of, which is like the Federal Fair Housing Act, which prohibits associations from discriminating against any owners. If you ever have an owner that says you're discriminating against me, if they're a protected class, That's a huge issue for an association to navigate. It's very expensive, these cases are. So, you want to fast track that to your association's attorney as soon as possible. So, buzzword would be you're discriminating against me. You should fast track that to your association's legal counsel so you can talk about whether the association may have an issue under the Fair Housing Act and what we need to do to make sure we protect the association if an owner feels that they're being discriminated against. Okay, last but not least, we're gonna go right into our questions. It looks like we have a very large amount of questions already. We have 24 that are listed. What I'm going to do is just start them and we'll just continue forward until we finish all of them. So thank you, those of you who are just staying here today for the presentation today, great having you here. We're gonna answer every question now that's been submitted. First question, for the director's president position, is there a document that might address the actual powers of the president and limit those powers? require more than the president's signature on contracts or purchase orders? Okay, so great question. So if you're serving as your president, or if you're concerned about the liberties that maybe your president is taking... A few things to look at. Number one, we shared with you our cheat sheet on duties and um, responsibilities of board members. On the flip side of that sheet, we talk about what is the typical role of the president. and That's a good resource. Second place you should be looking is your association's bylaws. The officers section in the bylaws will outline the responsibilities and the roles of the uh, president. In addition, you also want to look at how much authority has the board given the president. And by that, I mean, look at the minutes. Um, In some cases, the board will look at the what the president, maybe the president's the only person that's there during the summer months. And so maybe they'll say that the president has the authority to approve contracts up to five thousand dollars. Or the president has the approval to sign contracts on behalf of the board if a majority of the board approves it. So there's three places that you really want to look. So is there a document? Yes, the bylaws is one place. You also should look at the minutes and any resolutions that may have given the director, the the board president, more power. Okay, I went a little bit out of order on the question, so I don't want to mix anybody up. The next question is, what documents do we need to request from our current HOA management company? to verify the last recorded annual meeting and when the next annual meeting is scheduled for the community. Okay, this is a really timely question because during COVID, some associations missed their annual meeting in 2000. And maybe I have a couple that missed it in 2021 too. So remember you have to have an annual meeting every year. So what documents should you look at? Number one, look at your bylaws because the bylaws will tell us when should your annual meeting be. Sometimes it gives a month. Sometimes it gives a week within a month. Other times it just says that the board has to have it during that fiscal year. So look at your bylaws first. And then second, I would ask for copies of all previous annual meetings, whether they've been approved or unapproved. Has this been handled always in March every year or whatever? And so I would ask the management company for that. I would go to board meetings and ask, when are we planning to have our annual meeting this year? And I think those are some good tips for you if you want to find out more about when your last annual meeting meeting minute when your last annual meetings were. Remember that you approve the prior year's annual meeting minutes in the, the current year. So, for example, in your 2022 annual meeting, you'll be approving the 2021 annual meeting minutes. So, it's possible... That the management company may say, we don't have those approved yet for 2021, so you can't have them. What could do is just ask for the unapproved version. Maybe they'll get those to you. But that's the information that you need to ask for to find out when your next annual meeting is. Next question. To date, I have not received any notice on the status of the vote. I did call the Maricopa Recorder's Office twice and they had no record. They advised me to ask my HOA. At the end of 2021, I sent a letter to our management company and they did not respond. How can I find out if our cc rs have been recorded within 30 days of our vote being completed? Okay, so great question. So apparently your association has just gone through a cc amendment procedure. Once the association receives the requisite vote to, you know, pass the amendment or amendments. The association under the Condo Act and Plain Communities Act has 30 days to record the document. Typically, the document is signed by the president and the secretary and notarized. Their signatures are notarized. If the management company doesn't provide you with a copy of it, you could reach out to the association's attorney who helped the association with it and ask to have a copy of it. You can make a records request through the association's attorney or the management company. You also, if you're familiar with the Maricopa County Recorder's website, you can you know Google Maricopa County Recorder, go into their website, do a search based upon the association's name, limit the search to within the past year to see what's been recorded in the past year, and it should pop up. So I hope that's helpful for you to find out if that information has been recorded. Okay, next question. If an HOA's bylaws allow non director HOA members other than the president to be selected as officers, such as for the position of treasurer, is it wise to select a non director as treasurer? And if so, what might the ramifications be? So, great question. Sometimes we'll see in older association uh, bylaws that non owners can serve as. An officer for a corporation, specifically an HOA or condo. And so I'm I'm guessing that's what you mean by non-director HOA members. Maybe they're members of the HOA. Maybe they're not even members of the association. It doesn't really matter. We analyze it both ways. So you want to check to make sure that do the bylaws allow for this? If they do, it's allowable. It's really not advisable though. Where we've seen this in documents is... When the developer is in control, they typically have the developer's team serving as the board. And the team may not actually own property. And so they have the bylaws state that you don't have to be a director you know, or an owner to serve on your board. It's highly unusual that a non-owner or a non-board member serve as an officer like the treasurer. And I don't really advise it. The only time I can see maybe you might want to do that is if somebody is like a CPA and they're willing to serve as a treasurer. But it's kind of not that smart for that person to do that because we, we want to make sure that they have coverage under the insurance policy. And really just best practices would be to have the um, all directors and officers be members of the association and be directors. And if you want to get in somebody with specialized expertise, like a CPA, you hire them to give advice to your association. Next question. If I remember correctly, homeowners can ask to see the results of a board election or a ballot measure. If that is correct, it is. You are right on that. If a board member asks about how another homeowner voted, can we tell them or does that break confidentiality? So the question is, can owners request to see ballots for a board election or a ballot measure? Maybe you're doing a special assessment or amending your cc and or something like that. Yes, owners are, can see that for sure. There are some requirements like that records only have to be kept for a year by the association. So you should make that request within a year. And that's a record, a book and record of the association. So owners should be allowed to review that and see that, see how people voted if they so choose The only exception to that would be is if it's a secret ballot where the ballots aren't going to have any indicator as to how a person voted, there would be no way for them to tell um, how somebody voted. We wouldn't be able to track that and tell them if a secret ballot was used in an election or on a a ballot measure. Next question is, we have an HOA website that is hosted by a paid service that requires checking a lengthy, lengthy terms of use before posting content to a hosted webpage. For example, a suggestion box webpage that's only accessible by the registered HWA members to sign in with a username and password and then post content to it. Is this sufficient to protect the person that created the suggestion box webpage from liability for suggestions posted by other owners? Okay, so you have a website. Paid service requires lengthy terms of use, checking lengthy terms of use. Okay, so the homeowners have to check this box saying that they agree to the Terms of Use before they host content for a webpage. I don't have a problem with that. I'd have to see what the Terms of Use say, but I'm guessing that they're reasonable. But I'd have to see the Terms of Use before I would give a blanket, yes, it's okay for them to sign it. Again, it's a service that you're providing. And Mm -hmm. as long as the Terms of Use are reasonable, I have no issue with you having the HOA website require that the owners check this box after they read it and agree to the terms, as long as those terms are reasonable and consistent you know, with what other websites would have in terms of what owners can and can't do there. Next question, we're on question seven. We are a self-managed association, so we are responsible for paying our own bills. Is it legal or advisable to use the bill pay function on our account? This is the way many people pay personal bills. We were wondering if this is an option for us. So great question. We have a cheat sheet we're just sharing with you right now, the basics for self-managed associations, which has some great info for you on um, this topic and other topics. But the bottom line is, I'm okay, totally okay with using the bill pay function. Many associations are using that now, just like we use it in our personal life. But whoever is the treasurer needs to be reviewing those bills even if they're automatically being paid. And so either they're clicking a box to pay it electronically or they are reviewing it after it's automatically processed to make sure that the bill is reasonable or there's no outlier results like the water bill then triple in one month because typically that means that there's a water leak somewhere. So you can't just put it on autopilot and never look at it again. The treasurer would definitely have a responsibility to look at that. Okay, uh, next question. We are in the process of our annual election. Could you comment on Arizona Statute 331250? Our property manager has been separating the owner identification from the actual votes on the ballot before counting. Is that legal? Seems contrary to what the statute above says. Our local bylaws do not allow for secret ballots. Um, so I have to click on that actual link to... Let's see if I can do that real quickly. So I'm not sure specifically which section you're referring to, but this is the section 331250 pertains to what absentee ballot language must contain. From my perspective, it is odd that the property manager is separating the owner identification from the votes on the ballot before counting. You only do that if it's a secret ballot. And so... It's just odd. I don't know if they're cutting them with the scissors or what, but that seems problematic to me. The board should be commenting on that. The board should be giving direction to the manager saying these ballots are official records of the association. We shouldn't be separating the name from the vote unless there's a legitimate reason or unless we've announced it's a secret ballots can going to be used. So I think... That's odd. That raises concern to me. So I would definitely check with your board. If you're serving on your board, you should just give direction to the management company. Stop doing this. Okay. Next question we have is, let's see here. I'm an insurance agent. Just getting into writing HOA policies. What are the most common coverages that insurance agents miss on the HOA insurance policies? Okay, so thank you for being here today. I'm already loving that you care so much about our industry that you're getting involved in this. What I would recommend that you do is look at our cheat sheet on insurance, and we've already shared it once here today, and you can find it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And that outlines the different insurance policies that associations typically, you know, get for their association. Some newer ones that we've been hearing more about is like cybersecurity that we have newer issues that might not yet be on that cheat sheet. I don't know a lot of associations that actually are carrying that right now. It might be a rider already on your current policy. But what I would recommend is that you look at our cheat sheet on insurance coverages for associations when you're helping an association determine what type of insurance they should be carrying, make sure you look at the CCNRs because the CCNRs will outline the specific requirements especially for condominiums in terms of how much coverage they're required to have so that you're making sure that you're selling them a policy that is consistent with what they're required to have under their documents. okay question number 10 homeowner altercation resulted in damaged property. Homeowner one was using oils. And a tool in the and a massage tool in the jacuzzi. Another homeowner, number two, confronted this homeowner. Eventually, things escalated and homeowner one's cell phone landed in the jacuzzi. Ooh, this doesn't sound good. Police were called and a report was filed. Signs are posted all over the pool and jacuzzi area. Please do not use oils. Question. After reasonable notice of the violation from the HOA, if it does happen again, can we ban homeowner one from using the jacuzzi for violating the pool rules? Will there be any unforeseen legal ramifications for doing so? Great question. Um, Your pool rules should have specifically addressed. And so it sounds to me like there's signs already posted at your pool saying no oils are to be used. The association can fine this owner for that behavior after giving notice and an opportunity to be heard, as long as there's eyewitness testimony that this actually happened. Can we ban this person from using the jacuzzi because they're in violation? I'd have to look at what the CCNR say and whether, and also the bylaws, in terms of whether we can limit somebody's ability to use the common areas for violations if they're not in good standing. This is kind of a tricky one. I, I would say My inclination is no, because every owner has a right to use the common areas. But if they continue to violate it and use oils that are damaging, I think that we could likely have the attorney send a letter telling them to cease and desist. And if they continue to do it in the future, we could fine them large fine amounts or maybe even tell them they can't use it anymore. Although it's really hard to to do that because there has to be somebody there, like a security guard there who's monitoring the pool because these people just sneak in and use it. And I'm not sure that just a letter from the association saying you've lost your privileges to use it and the questions is how long this would be for. So it's a sticky wicket. I would recommend finding the owner. I would recommend escalating it to your attorney. And if they continue to do it, you may have to get a court order telling them to stop doing it. Okay, question 12. Let's see. Our HOA board, of which I'm a member of the board, wants all of the board members to sign a code of conduct. I've consulted another lawyer about this code. His response was, in general, the language used is broad, imprecise, and, and not particularly well-written. And some of the items violate your First Amendment rights of free speech. Item five is trying to limit behavior, even when you're not a board member. And they, you know, the attorney's general consensus was that this was overly broad. How can I challenge this? Okay, a couple things on a code of conduct. We actually have a cheat sheet on this. And I do recommend... um, having associations adopt a code of conduct if there's a high level of dysfunction in the community on your board, because it shows... I I see all the warning signs like people aren't following the documents. They're not respecting fiduciary responsibilities to the community. They're not keeping confidential information confidential. There's a number of reasons that would prompt me to say You need to adopt a code of conduct. Maybe your association's board is thinking that already. And that's why this code of conduct has come into play. Take a look at our our cheat sheet on the code of conduct. I don't think ours is overly broad. What you might want to do is recommend that your board consider adopting our cheat sheet language on the code of conduct because I think it's fair and even I can't comment on that other one because I haven't seen it, but I'm not opposed to codes of conduct where there's a high level of dysfunction on a board. Sometimes it's necessary because things are out of control. We need to like get things dialed back in so that we're focusing on improving our community and we stop fighting as a board. And so I'm not opposed to it. What you might want to do is look at our code of conduct and see if the language is more suitable there. Just a note, a word of caution for you, a majority of the board can adopt the code of conduct, so you can vote against it and the board could still subject you to it. So you you do need to know that. Be careful that you aren't violating it if, in fact, it has been adopted by your board. Next question, what does a homeowner do if they know that a board member has committed unethical, if not fraudulent, acts and another board member is covering up to avoid scandal or accountability? Okay, this is a tough question because I don't know how serious it sounds. Bad, but ethical, unethical, possibly fraudulent. I think you you have a right as a homeowner to make a records request. We talked about that today, so I would request records on whatever you think the impropriety is going was going on. You could go to the ADRE, the Arizona Department of Real Estate, and file a petition. Um, against the board members regarding whatever improprieties you think might be occurring. That is at a minimal fee of $500 per claim. And there's no liability for attorney's fees. So that's something that you can do. You can run for the board yourself. You can do a removal petition to remove your board from office. And you can find a procedure on that. On our top 10 cheat sheet, number six, there's a state law that... A applies to removing a drafter from office. These are all you know options that you have. And I'm sorry, this is happening to your association. I, I don't know for sure if there is a cover up or whatever, but I think I'm giving you the tools to find out more information. Okay, question 13. Does ARS section 28873 effective September 2021 regarding sidewalk encro- encroachment for ADA accessibility? apply to common area sidewalks. Our internal roads are not... Actually, I'm not familiar with this statute, so it's hard for me to comment on it specifically, but typically if your internal roads and sidewalks are private, something that applies to public streets and public sidewalks wouldn't apply. Okay, next question, number 14. If we didn't meet quorum for our annual meeting, what happens to the member that did not run again? Do we then only have four out of the five members? So really good question. So we're to have an annual meeting and we didn't have a quorum. And so the election didn't take place. So what do we do with that holdover? So one board member was running for election. One seat was open, excuse me, under your facts. So we have five member board. Apparently, one seat was open for the election at the annual meeting. So what happens, unfortunately, is for the member that chose not to run again, they stay on the board seated until their replacement is elected. Typically, that's how bylaws are worded. And so even though that person didn't want to run again, they're still on the board. And you have to decide, are we going to try to have a second attempt at the annual meeting? If so, that person just stays on until the next attempt at the reattempted annual meeting to get a quorum. If your board decides you're not going to reattempt to have the annual meeting, some options are would be that board member stays on until the next annual meeting in 2023. Another option would be for that board member to resign in writing. And typically when there's a resignation, the board can appoint the replacement. So the board could appoint the replacement during this year. And then you'll want to check to see how long that replacement's term is. Typically, it says that they're only appointed until the next annual meeting. And then there's an election for that spot. But it really does depend on what your bylaws say. Question 14. If we don't meet quorum... Let's see. I already got that one. Okay. Question 15. Monsoons continue to damage the retaining walls of the wash that borders four homes. This has resulted in spot treatment in the past, but seems now to be drastically worsening, requiring a better solution. The engineer cost is approximately $10,000, not to mention construction. Will we require member approval before spending this money? Thank you. Okay, so we've got retaining walls on the wash that orders only four homes. So I have to know more about how these walls are treated. Are they, you know, Walls that we have mutual to the owner and the association has maintenance responsibilities. And I don't know if the damage is due to a lack of maintenance by the association per se on this green belt or whatever wash that is adjacent to these homes. So there's kind of some factors here that I don't know the answer on. I'm leaning to say, though, that because there's a drainage issue there, and it's coming from the wash, and likely the association has responsibility for the wash, that this is going to be an association expense. And you, you're going to need to fix that drainage problem so that even if you rebuild the wall, it doesn't continue to happen in the future. But do we need member approval before we spend 10000 on this? It, it just depends. You probably need to have your attorney weigh in as to whether this is an association expense, number one. I would also look to see if there's a expenditure cap in your bylaws or your articles, maybe even your CCNRs, that any expense over X amount of dollars requires a vote of the membership. If it doesn't, then the board likely has the authority to do this. But again, check in with your attorney because you want to make sure that this isn't an expense that should be charged to a third party if the wash is owned by a third party or maybe if the owners did something that contributed to the damage to the wall and they may have some responsibility to pay for this as well. Okay, question 16. How dangerous is it to not be in compliance with the fair housing statement of compliance? Certifying a person living in a home is 55 plus. Arizona law states that the HOA must survey homeowners every two years. Okay, so this is a sticky wicket. So if you're a 55 and over community, yes, you really should be doing a survey at least every two years to make sure that at least one occupant of every lot or unit is age 55 or over. I don't, every cc are different, so you may only need to have 80%. It may be higher. I don't know what your CCNRs say. Uh, state and federal law does require for you to keep your 55 and over status. It does require you to have at least 80% of the lots or units to have one owner or occupant, excuse me, that is 55 or over. Some associations, instead of doing a survey or a census every two years, What they're doing is they're updating the records annually. Anytime a new owner moves in, they're asking for proof of verification and they feel that might be enough. It's probably not because people pass away, people move, there's new rentals coming in and out. So we really do recommend that you comply with the law and do that survey at least once every two years. Okay, next question Is there any recourse for the board when the management company gets a bid and pays for services that were not requested by the board? Really, the board should be talking with the manager and the management company and say, we didn't authorize this. This is not an expense that we authorize you to pay. Look at your management contract. Maybe you have some recourse against the management company for doing this. I mean, I guess the question is, why did the management company do this? Were they doing it because the board should be doing it and you just weren't doing it? Let's say, I don't know, maybe there's a piece of equipment in your top lot and there's a sharp edge on it. And it's just a safety thing. The management company just checked a box and got it done for you quickly because it was a health and safety issue. I'm less worried about that. I think that's fine that the management company did that. But maybe it's a bigger expenditure. like They authorized the tree trimming $25,000 and the board didn't authorize that. So I would need to know more about how much it was, why the management company did it, what the motivations were, what the bid was for. Did they get You know, three bids, is it a reasonable cost that was paid? You know, why wasn't the board consulted? And I would look at all the facts and then make a decision as to okay, is this something that we're going to have to pursue the management company for? Is this something that's going to destroy our relationship where we're going to terminate the management company? Or is this something where we're just going to better communicate with the management company that we didn't like how this went down, but we understand why they did it? Okay, next question, number 18. Can you repeat what you said about the articles trump the bylaws? But then you said to follow the bylaws. Okay, yes, I will. So I will, under Arizona law, there's a hierarchy of documents. And the hierarchy is that the CCNRs are at the top, the articles are second, the bylaws are third, and the rules or architecture guidelines are going to be fourth. So sometimes in that hierarchy, The documents conflict so for example let's say that the articles say that there should only be a three member board and the bylaws say that there should be a seven member board you go back to the hierarchy that we talked about and the articles trump the bylaws so you would follow what the articles say so i'm not sure why i didn't i don't believe that i said you'd follow the bylaws you always follow whoever's higher in the hierarchy so again the hierarchy is CCNRs, articles, bylaws, rules, architectural guidelines are on the same level. So if there is a discrepancy in the documents, you go by who's higher in the hierarchy. Question number 19, and it looks like we have a total of 26 questions. So we're moving right along. Can you address who can speak, make motions, and vote in an annual meeting of the members? It was my understanding that all attending could vote on minutes, request amendments and corrections. But some board members believe even at the annual meeting, only board members vote with the exception of the election of officers. So really good question. So at an annual meeting, typically owners should be allowed to have a comment period. This is the owner's meeting. Association boards should give owners an opportunity to comment. Typically, we do that while the ballots are being counted so that we're efficient with our time so they open up the homeowner forum after the election closes and the inspectors of election are counting the ballots maybe with the attorney and then we let the homeowners have their comment period so homeowners can talk during the annual meeting during that homeowner comment period. Homeowners, um, typically the board runs the annual meeting, just so you know. So the president opens it, establishes a quorum. The first item on the agenda is typically approval of last year's annual meeting minutes. You need a motion from the audience, a second from the audience. There could be discussion and anyone in the audience or the board could make a comment. And then the audience approves or disapproves last year's meeting minutes. Obviously, the attendees, whether they're in person or by absentee ballot, they can vote on the approval of the minutes, they vote on the election of the directors, and you have an opportunity to say things in the comment period. Some boards allow for questions to be asked as like, the president gives a report or the treasurer or the manager's report. It's really up to the boards that they structure how that meeting is run. Okay, we shared with you again, a cheat sheet on open meeting and excuse me on the the annual meetings previously in this presentation. So I hope that you, you know, use that to help you, you know, as you navigate the um, annual meeting. Okay, next question. How does the open meeting rule pertain to board discussion by email then voting by email or to special meetings versus regular board meetings? Okay, so the open meeting law requires that anytime the board, anytime a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, it must be an open board meeting. Okay, so if you're having a special meeting of the board or a regular meeting of the board, you still have to give 48 hours notice to the membership of the special meeting of the board or the regular board meeting, and owners should be allowed to attend, participate, or listen. Okay, if your board is making decisions by email, be really careful on that because, again, the intent of the law is to have all decisions and discussion by the board during an open board meeting. Again, really the only time you can use email, and we talked about this earlier in the presentation, is to share information but not discuss it. Like, here are three bids for the tree trimming. We will discuss this at the meeting next week. Here is the board packet. We will discuss this at the board meeting. Can everybody meet the first Thursday of the month? to do a walkthrough of the property and then having people respond on that. that's okay that are board members. But let's fire the management company. Let's talk about how the landscaper isn't doing a good job. All that should not be done by email. That needs to be done in the open board meeting. One suggestion would be is if you are have an emergency situation where the board has no alternative but to make a decision quickly, you can't wait 48 hours, They can either meet in person or they can make the decision by email and remember the paper trail on that you need to have minutes or you need to share the emails at the next regularly scheduled open board meeting as to why there was an emergency and what was decided okay next question which is question 21 what options does the board have when another board member does not fulfill their fiduciary duties as a board member and continually violates the governing documents so We have a really good blog on this topic. It's called Dysfunction Among Board Members that we're sharing with you. Our website has a lot of great information on this too. An option would be number one, you can remove that board member from office. So there's a procedure under Arizona law to remove directors from office. And you can look at our cheat sheet. It's our top 10 cheat sheet. It's number six on the top 10 cheat sheet. There's a whole procedure you have to follow. So you can remove the director from office. You can have... All the board adopt a code of conduct so that the board member is not living up to their fiduciary responsibilities. We can say that they're violating the code of conduct. You can ask that person to resign. Verbally say at a meeting, we don't feel that you are living up to your fiduciary responsibilities. We are asking you to resign and then have a piece of paper ready so that if they say they will you get them to sign it so there's no resignation remorse, which we've seen in the past. You want to be careful on that. Get them to sign it right then and there. It doesn't make sense to sue this board member because it's like suing yourself. As a board suing a board member, the insurance company is going to defend that one board member you're suing. So that doesn't make sense. So Really, your best options are going to be to call out that person in a, a board meeting regarding their failure to you know, abide by their fiduciary responsibilities, ask them to resign, have that piece of paper right there handy, run good candidates against them at the next annual meeting if you choose not to do a removal petition to remove that person from office. And, you know, it's okay to document this in the meeting. Ask this person to be better do better going forward. You don't want to set the board up to be, you know, sued, but hopefully a majority of the board is making good decisions, so it's just this one person that's not carrying their weight. Next question number 22, if a quorum of a board member exchanges texts, is that considered a board meeting? And must it be shared with all in the HOA? Ooh, good question. So yes, this would be just like an email. The board should not be discussing association business. A quorum of the board should not be discussing association business via text. Now, one thing I want a caveat I want to say is for email and text, if it's less than a quorum discussing association business, that is okay under the law. That's a loophole. If it's a quorum doing this, it's not okay, and it needs to be done in the open board meeting. Now again, we've got that emergency exception, which we've talked about now two or three times in this session. Okay, next question. If our CCRS don't discuss fines for a violation of CCNRS and provide a fine schedule, can our board impose fines under Arizona law? So great question. Yes, you can. The Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act allow for associations to boards to levy fines against an owner for a violation of the CCNR's bylaws and rules of your association. The fine just has to be reasonable and you have to give the owner notice and an opportunity to be heard. So you do not have to have a fine schedule. Now, there was some confusion on this a couple of years ago because there was a case that was decided that He said that you associations needed to have a written fine policy. That case was later depublished. Is it a good idea? Possibly some associations really like it because it outlines what the remedies are. If we have a violation, we're notifying everybody, this is what the consequences are. And maybe that's a deterrent for people to behave badly if they see that on the fine policy. Also, it, it doesn't give a lot of discretion because to the board, it just says first offense, second offense, third offense. There's pros and cons for the fine policy either way. But the bottom line is you are not required under Arizona law. It does not say that in the statute that you have to have a fine policy and the case that said that in Arizona was depublished, which means that it's no longer you no know, valid law. Okay, next question, number 24. Our president and HOA manager said annual, annual meeting is only going to be an announcement of board members only. Can they do that? It's scheduled for 30 minutes only. This seems like a level of dysfunction in your community. So that's really not how the annual meeting should be run. Okay, A, you have to approve last month's last year's annual meeting minutes B, this should be the time to give a report about what's been going on in your association. And C, obviously, the main purpose of the annual meeting is to elect directors, no question. The annual meeting is, like I said previously, it's a time for the board to shine. It's a time for the board to update the members as to what's been going on, whether it's good things, bad things, challenges, whatever. And you really owe it to your members to do that. So, you know, can I say that's against the law? No. I mean, I like to see your bylaws because sometimes the bylaws have an agenda that you have to follow for your annual meeting. And if that's the case, your association should be following that. But it just shows to me that there is something going on there. That it's there's a problem on that board. I don't understand why they would just do that for the annual meeting. There's something. There's a level of dysfunction there that concerns me. Okay, last three questions. When we update our CCNRs, will all of the amendments be in the new CCNRs? Yes, depends on how you structure it. Sometimes we do an amendment where we just call it like the first amendment to the CCNRs, and we just list what the amendments are, what they what the changes are to the few sections that have been changed. And then there's two separate documents. There's the original CCNRs and then the first amended CCNRs. And you need to look at both documents to see what the changes are. Other times we when we pass the amendments, we pass them as amended and restated CCNRs. And that means that everything is included in one document. So it just really depends on how um, you structure the amendment. Last two questions. Are many associations using DocuSign or similar methods to deliver ballots for signature? So great question. I would say that a very small minority, like maybe 5% of our clients are using electronic voting. With an electronic voting company like A2A Vote Now is one that comes to mind. So very few associations have converted to totally electronic voting using a company to manage your voting. But a lot of associations are using different means to accept ballots, like they're accepting ballots by fax, they're accepting ballots by email, they're accepting ballots in ways that are different from maybe the way we did 10 years ago. So using DocuSign for ballots for signature Like I said, very few are doing that, but it is definitely the wave of the future. And the associations that have converted absolutely love it. And some barriers to converting on it are that some owners have technological difficulties and maybe they don't even have a computer. So requiring them to electronically in this manner would be a hardship to them. The way around that is that you give owners who want a ballot an opportunity to have one mailed to them and you just put that right in the notice. Okay, next question. Can members of an association make motions at an annual meeting other than approve minutes and vote for the board, or do they have to come in advance in the form of a resolution? Okay, so great question. So your annual meeting, we've already gone over what the different topics are that can are typically discussed, but can members make motions? No. They really can't. Other than approving last year's meeting minutes and seconding it, members can make comments about how they feel things are being run or whatever. But like, for example, a member couldn't just stand up and say, I make a motion to amend section 3.1 of the bylaws to say this. That's not an appropriate motion for an annual meeting. So to answer your question, I'm sorry if I didn't fully answer that when you asked the first part of this, but there are limitations as to what owners can do at the annual meeting. And that would definitely be one of them. Okay, so we finished out today. We had an hour of teaching with our virtual seminar. We answered 44 minutes of questions, 27 different questions. So thank you so much for all of you for being here today for class number two of our 2022 Virtual HOA Condo Academy. We're going to be meeting every month in 2022 with the Virtual HOA Academy, and it's always going to be the same time. So it's the 3rd Tuesday of the month um, at at the same time, and we will be continuing on with cutting-edge topics throughout the rest of 2022. I'd like to just take this time again to thank the Neighborhood Services Departments from the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe for their teamwork and continued partnership with our firm, the Mulcahy Law Firm, for putting together these amazing virtual classes. We have been able to provide free education to over 50,000 people. Uh, 50,000 views we've had of these classes to date, and you can tell by the attendance today, we had a record number of people here today, probably the highest attendance I think we've had since the pandemic was in really full swing. So happy to have you here today. We also will be back again on the third Tuesday of the month on March 15th for class number three of our 2022 virtual HOA Condo Academy. And we're going to talk about how to run effective board meetings and annual meetings. And I can tell those are hot topics because we had a lot of questions there. So I'm going to be talking to you from the trenches, 25 years experience doing board meetings and annual meetings. I'm going to tell you some good stories about things that have happened, some mistakes that I've seen happen at annual meetings. And I'm going to give you suggestions on how to comply with the law and handle any problems that you're having with either regular board meetings or annual meetings. So I hope to see you at any one of these upcoming uh, free virtual teaching opportunities. I wish you all the best. I hope you have a great rest of the week and I hope to see you again soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. For more information on future classes, seminars, and more podcasts, please visit our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. The intent of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call in, videos, and podcasts is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note the content of these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening.